welcome to the Show Up Podcast, a place where we explore leadership and how it's showing up for us in the world in which we work, and a space for you to explore what leadership means in your context, how you show up, how you turn up to be the best leader you can be in the world that you work in today. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the Shop Podcast and we've got another guest on which is great. I'm personally really looking forward to this episode because we've got a little bit of an expert uh, here with us today. Uh, you've got myself and Derry. Hello. He is the expert in his field but we've also got a chap called Tony Quinlan on. Tony, a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Delighted to be invited. It's good to see you. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. And rather than me completely gatecrash the bio you very kindly sent us, Tony, how do you fit into this wonderful world? So um, I come in at this because I deal with complexity and I help organisations deal with complex issues like change, like behavioural change, like all sorts of things like that, both at the employee scale, at national scale for people like United Nations Development Programme. Um And I came at it in a way because I use stories as tools to work in complexity. And funny enough, I came at it the other way around. I used to be many years ago a communicator for people like IBM. Um, And while I was there, bless them, um, they put me on an MBA, various other things. I was running a change program and I was reading a book about narrative that went, well, every group that's ever been in humanity's history defines who's in and who's out and what we aspire to and what we don't tolerate by telling each other stories. And I sat in IBM at that point and said to my boss at the time, we need to, you know, I'm writing the principles, but actually we need to look at the myths and legends in this place. And he very graciously went, that's a really interesting idea. If you could come up with um, the speech for the director and maybe a press release, that would be great. And I was like, no, 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 no. We've got to find out who the heroes and villains are in this place and then tell those stories. Great. That's lovely. Nice idea. Um, Like I said, speech for the director will do. Um, So it's a number of years after that, I managed to start getting into narrative. And from there, I then got into the complexity world and realized that's the bigger picture. Narrative and stories are just tools to use in that space. Mate, and interesting. Derry, I can see that your brain is buzzing already. Yeah, I I mean, I love this idea of storytelling as a tool. I'm also really resonating with that experience of people not really understanding why it's valuable. Mm-hmm. I've actually had clients say to me when we've t- talking about how we're going to structure a consulting skills training program. And we say, and we've got this uh, important section towards the end where we introduce the idea of storytelling and uh, y- using narrative structures to influence people. And clients have actually said to me, like, Oh, don't, don't talk about stories. That all sounds a bit wishy-washy. Yeah, um, and so fascinating that you've obviously had that experience as well. Why is that? Do you think why do why are people resistant to the idea of stories and narrative in a business setting? Well, I, I actually I think a lot of it is down to the terminology we use. So early on in I started narrating two thousand, I switched to talking about narrative, um, and I talked about narrative audits or narrative structures rather than storytelling because. I think there's still a sense that the word story and storytelling is something we apply to children. And it puts it into that space. And there's another piece to that, which is, 
you know, if, if you're caught telling stories, that, that's lying. So there's something around the language around it, I think, that oh, that in a lot of people's heads trivializes it um, and infantilizes it. And I think that's where it comes from. It's been fascinating to watch over the last 20 years the idea that actually story or more particularly narrative is now talked about. I spent the first five years with narrate going into places going, let's look at the narratives. And they basically send me away going, that's interesting. Whatever you've been smoking must have been really good stuff. But we just tell people what to do in here and they do it. I'm thinking that's not true, but you obviously think it is. It's nice that you think that's true. That holds. Um but I've watched over those 20 years, the word narrative is now used as this gloriously abstract thing. Have we got the narrative right on this? Have we got a strong narrative? All of this. While it's almost become divorced from it, it's almost like it's just a, a marketing message is often how people talk about the narrative. Um, Reference the previous episode around labels, because <laughs> we had an episode, <laughs> the last one we talked about was labels. And it sounds like your experience has found that that word narrative has become a label for a way of being around a particular thing in yeah. business. Yeah. Almost like it's become a bit of a buzzword and through that lost true meaning for a lot of people. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah. And I think also that funny enough, that's where for me using stories starts to become helpful around labels. When I think back to, places like IBM and what have you, we might set out the principles. We are innovative or we are leadership or customer comes first. That means different things to different people, depending on what their understanding of that label is. Mm. But if instead, and this is one of the things we learned quite early on, is if you describe it in terms of, let me give you a couple of examples. And you always need multiple examples, not just one. But you go, okay, so this is what I think innovation is. And here's a situation. Here's what we did. Here's the problems. And here was the end result. And here's another one over here in a different context and different situation. And preferably you give a couple of examples of what you don't want. People start to triangulate on that and go, oh, so when you said innovation, you meant that, not this, which is what I had in my head. And they can only get it when they've got context. And to me, that's where the stories come in. Stories carry context as well as principle and decision in them, if they're good ones. And is that triangulation the reason why you say multiple stories are necessary because yeah. it's the multiple stories that allow people to figure out where the boundaries are of the definition of whatever it is they're talking about exactly so and for me the risk of, of telling one story is everyone goes oh that's it and they'll try and copy it and what you're trying to illustrate is the principles in a context so that people can make decisions for themselves rather than just copy the successful one yeah, that really resonates, actually. One of the things I've noticed on our, our training programs is we'll introduce a concept and then we'll give an example and then we'll move into an exercise. And with a high degree of frequency in the exercise, people will just mimic precisely the example, even if it's an illustrative example of a principle that they then need to apply differently. They just take the example. And it yeah. makes me think, well, actually, we need three or four different examples to set the boundaries and triangulate around that. And in a way, those examples are stories on a micro scale. So mm -hmm. yeah, they're very interesting. Well, for me, it, it talks to the sense-making piece of it, right? We experience so much of the world. We've talked about it before on the podcast in various different ways we experience the world. But there's part of it that doesn't have words to it, but it has feelings and emotions and chemical reactions in the body. 
the ability to then talk around that, make sense of it through words, through narrative, is a way of forming what your reaction or experience has been to and it's something you've done for the first time. And mm. I always, I had it recently, completely separate business example to business actually, where I was at a, a coaching event for basketball and a guest coach came in with some of the most, three of the most talented players in the UK at under 18 level. And the coach didn't build much rapport and just invited these people to do something. And they couldn't know what to do because they were trying to mirror exactly what he'd asked step by mm. step with great precision, but they actually failed the whole task because they didn't really understand what to do yeah. because they'd not had a chance to explain the narrative that was going ahead was we feel really hijacked right now. We can't do it. So it seems mm. like this, this, this ability to explore story of an experience can really benefit people. Is that what yeah. you've noticed, Tony? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's fascinating to me. So the way you're talking about it, I love it. If you, if you come across the Kenevin framework from Dave Snowden, um, and there's pieces in there where he talks about the predictable side of things, the ordered side of things, mm-hmm. there's obvious and there's complicated, where best practice or good practice come in. So in those spaces, crack on, copy, you know, replicate it, fine, keep going, no problem. It's when you're in that complex space when the slight difference between one basketball team and another suddenly matters hugely, in which case what applied over there doesn't apply over here. Um, There was a point I used to chair a lot of of internal comms conferences at one point, and you'd watch people taking notes about, you know, oh, that one, they did that. Okay. And you could see them sort of get about halfway down their notes and go, oh, that won't work in my place. And then they just sort of give up. It's just like, well, of course it won't work in your place, but there's some ideas you can transfer. Um, it's also, there's a piece to it that, that matters to me, which is also that you've got to tell the negative stories and welcome the negative stories and where there were problems. So a good narrative should have obstacles and difficulties in it. Because then people can go, oh, you had that too. Or near misses or c- corrections, course corrections along the way. Because all of these illustrate thinking processes, which actually, coming back to sort of some of what we started to talk about, was around how leaders use stories. Too often we iron out the difficult bits. Let's just tell a rosy story that goes, here was a problem, we fixed it, and we had a great result. Thanks very much. And everybody goes, um, I don't really believe that. And I'm worried that you might believe that. And also when you think about leaders in that context that they're, they're trying to inspire people to do things and take action and achieve things and if they've told this rosy story of how easy everything was and how we got from point a to point b um really successfully etc without all of the narrative structure in there then they're just they're creating a false expectation aren't they their teams the teams are going to go out and do things and end up just demotivated when they hit the roadblocks. So, well, that isn't what Sarah said it was like. She told me it was plain sailing the whole way, and now it's really challenging. Yeah. There's there's a falsity to that whole piece, but it also, I think, again, it, it infantilizes people. Um, there's some stuff that Gary Klein did, um, if you've read his Sources of Power, which is one of the great books about naturalizing decision-making. Um And he talks about how we as human beings, we take in a certain amount of information and we can't take in that much. And then we apply, we do pattern matching in our brains. We don't process information, we pattern match. 
And the patterns that are in our heads are those that come from our experience to some degree, but much of it comes from the stories and the narratives that play around our culture. You know, whether it's the coffee machine as was or Smoker's Corner in the days before that, um, or briefly for me, my, my earliest ever official industrial job was the tea trolley when everybody queued up and just started sharing stories about what's going on that morning. But then those bits of stories, those fragments of stories, are how people make the decisions. They pattern match to go, hang on, this piece fits that. So they create those. And if you don't give them enough about what the difficulties might be, then they get stymied every time. Um, it's also a piece to, to some of the other issues we sometimes talk about in complexity around things like behavior change or culture change, which is we make assumptions about how people are processing the information we give them. And we, we can't tell that unless we hear what stories they're holding and therefore what patterns they're using to interpret the data we give them. So there's a piece for leaders that you need to understand the stories that are already out there before you try and tell yours. That's really interesting. So that whole pattern matching concepts, like the, the stories that you hear, you're interpreting in the context, your own personal context of the patterns that you're familiar with, whether that's in the workplace you're currently in or in your broader world and right back to childhood, et cetera. And the, the frameworks that we use to simplify our world, we've talked about that a bit more a bit on this podcast before. How can you, like, as a leader, if you think about the people in that golden age of leadership, 25 to 40, often stepping into leading people for the first time, they're going to bring with them primarily their own patterns and they're going to interpret stories and tell stories in line with their own patterns. And what you're saying is that for many people, like those stories may land differently with the people that they're telling them to. And particularly in environment where more and more driving towards cognitive and uh, teams where people are like you're actively assembling teams of people who have different patterns mm -hmm. in how they think because there's value in that so as a as a leader if you're sitting there as a leader going right i get that stories seem like they could be powerful to me but what i'm hearing now is there's a real risk in me telling stories that don't land in the way that i hope they're going to land how do yeah. we how do we navigate through that what's the, what's the best way to use that pattern matching effectively so funny enough it's 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 an uncommon business tool but it's actually one of the easiest is there's a thing i've used in the past and again it's come from um snowden's some of snowden's work but it's an anthropological technique called the anecdote circles which is just to listen it's the equivalent of a friday night in the pub um or for those who, who are tuned into this particular one the four yorkshiremen you think about the four Yorkshiremen sketch from Monty Python, some guys sitting around going, oh, I remember when I were a lad. And bit by bit, everybody just raises the ante. We're telling a story. And we did this, funnily enough, with the Department for Transport in the UK a number of years ago. They came to narrate and said, help us get our leadership story straight. Um, there were various context pieces that were problematic for them at the time. And we went, OK, we're not going to help you get a story, but we will get you multiple stories about what leadership, good and bad, looks like and the different elements to it, the different dimensions to it. And we ran these sessions and we trained people up within the DFT. Um, and it was one of these moments when we put people in a room, we sat about in the tables of eight and I put a facilitator on each table and we recorded the, the stories. 
And we started with, okay, can you think of a time when you've seen really good leadership in this organization? And there was this long pause. Uh, and I tapped my my colleague on the shoulder and said, just flip it. And she went, okay, how about bad leadership? And there was this muttered voice, because that's a target-rich environment. Right. And off we went. But what was fascinating was once they started to, after a while they self-corrected, so they started to tell positive stories. Actually, this moment was really good. That moment was really good. And it takes a minor trigger, but the trigger has to be, think of a moment when things were great. Or, you know, okay, tell me about this team before. When has it worked well? When has it not worked well? What happened? And you try and pull them away from abstractions and principles to, no, 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 that's all lovely. What happened? Oh, well, it was a Friday night and -and so-and-so was stuck doing this project and we were all about to go and we realised he was having a difficult day. So actually... June stepped in and helped him. And you, know, and you suddenly get the stories coming out that way. And it's very easy to do, but you've got to recognize you listen. And what's fascinating is it works really well, both with intact teams or teams that are coming together for the first time, who start to, if you spend like an hour and a half telling stories to each other, people go, oh, I see who you are. I see who you are. I see what you know. At a time when, in other examples I've worked in the past, you know, it's two months down the line and you're, the project's running into the sand and someone's going, yeah, this happened on the last one I was on as well. Well, you could have told us earlier. But if you if you get into that habit of just listening first and not listening just to people's complaints or whatever else, but deliberately going in and going, tell me stories about what this work is like. Then you gather this information, which tells you where to go and gives you huge amount of knowledge. I've had people walk out of those sessions halfway through. I thought they were throwing a hissy fit. And in fact, one of them was a very senior guy um, at the Department of Transport. And as he left, I said, everything okay? He says, no, 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 that was so helpful. I've just heard a story which shows me what I can do to address the problem that I've had sitting on my desk for the last four months. And I was just gonna, I'm just going to go and do that now. I'll be back in 15 minutes. And he was. And it was like, oh, this is this is not just about culture and collecting stuff. It's about sharing knowledge. And suddenly people get to triangulate and go, oh, this explains my problem. So that's, in, on the theme of Flip It, Tony, what's the big risks of storytelling? There's a, a big one I find a lot, which is you'll find out the truth of where people are at. Say more. And sometimes that can be disappointing, particularly if you've been working to metrics or other things, whether it's customers or employees or what have you. you know, your employee engagement survey says we're 75% or 76.7% positive. And then you gather the stories and you find everybody is fed up and depressed at some level. And so that can be a risk. And one of the other risks associated with that sometimes is that people go, just share the positive ones. You, know, you, you hear appreciative inquiry and things like that, which is, it's kind of a therapeutic technique and it's a lovely temptation. Let's just be positive about everything. But if you don't gather some negatives, and if you don't give people the opportunity to tell negatives, you'll make it worse. And it sounds like you're genuinely not listening, at which point it becomes very difficult indeed. Um, well, you, other- are, you are you are genuinely not listening if you're yeah. <laughs> if you're wanting to brush the negative stories under the carpet. 
Yeah. I remember yeah. a client where they were like, we need to get feedback. We need to see how the program's gone. I said, don't ask for feedback. <laughs> because yeah. you're going to hear the, the, the biased or the warped version of what's really going on. Ask for insights. Open mm -hmm. up the idea that you can get all sides of the story. And it's okay to hear all of them. And they got improved response because people could share what they were really wanted to say, mm. not the expected version. Yeah. There's there's two words that are coming up for me hearing, listening to you speak here, Tony. One is curiosity. So to, to uncover these stories is a real need to step mm. into the genuine curiosity about what's going on for the people you're asking and when I think about that in terms of the young leaders that we're talking to on this podcast if they're starting to put teams together for the first time like that curiosity about the individual stories of the people in that team and making mm -hmm. time and space for that sounds really important yeah and then the other the other word is curiosity is one word the other word is vulnerability and that uh, that willingness for leaders to step into vulnerability and risk that there will be public recitations of negative stories that might be about their own behaviors and their willingness to allow those stories to be publicly aired and to step into what they, what they've learned about that, themselves there and why that happened and the lessons learned from it. Mm -hmm. That's really difficult, I think, for a lot of people, particularly people who are kind of up and coming to admit their mistakes and yeah. learn the lessons from them. Yeah. But I think that last point is really important to be able to sort of to name, here's a thing that I did and I wish I hadn't, here's what I've learned and here's where I am now, is actually a really healthy story to tell people because yeah. it, it starts to dismiss this whole idea of the perfect leader who never makes a mistake or whatever, which is so, so strong in so many industries from the generation above who to them admitting a mistake feels like a weakness um, and in the politicking game, that's the one thing you can't ever do. So I think there's a, there's a beautiful role modeling available for those coming through. Okay, we've got to change that. that. We have to have, I hate the word paradigm shift, but it is. You know, It's a new way of doing things, which says vulnerability is a strength, not a weakness. Yeah. It's a fascinating concept. You know, I, I get the pleasure of working in cultures all across the world. And, you know, some cultures have a, a deep, belief in saving face yeah so how that vulnerability piece plays out for them could be really interesting because they've got a core societal belief mm -hmm. that they've got to work with and then there's others that you know let's go west with with things yeehaw only positive all the way you know if we're not on the positive train are we even doing anything in this world and and i really like what you you say there because i i think back to my early career when i used to sit in sales conferences and, you know, the, the director train goes on the stage and does all the thing. But the one that was always meant the most was as soon as the most senior leader in, in that meeting, whether it was the CEO or the business unit director, told a personal story mm -hmm. yeah. or shared the personal experience they went through of difficulty, of challenge, of time. You know, look how people respond to any Netflix documentary that's got a difficult challenge involved in it. Mm -hmm. They lap it up. You know, everyone's currently Neil, Neil, Neil's Sherpa or whatever his face is these days. I'm sorry if I've got his name wrong, but, you know, 13 peaks in no, no time whatsoever. And it's just inspired people because of the way the narrative has been shared. 
Um, but, and it's funny you say that. There's a thing, there's a project we did, uh, we actually wrote it up about, I guess it's, it must be about 10, 15 years ago now, for Pfizer. Huh? Um, and Pfizer had a situation where there was a drug that had about a year left to run on its patent. So they had to maximize sales. Um, and their head of comms have been approached by the project product team saying, we we will really want to max our revenue on this thing in the next 18 months. But but we've just had somebody stand up at a public conference, a doctor, and say, I love this drug. I'd prescribe it more if your own sales team had any faith in it. At which point the guy was like, okay, so what's the problem? Oh, we don't know. So we, we're commissioning an, an, another scientific survey to get data to reinforce it, whatever. Um, and Nigel, who was the comms guy at, at Pfizer, had come to me, Nigel Edwards, had said, I've got a sense there's something else going on here. I want you to do I want you to do the research to tell us what's actually going on. And we re- we went around and we ran a bunch of anecdote circles in I think it was six different countries, something like 10 different cities in the space of two weeks. And we collected stories from sales reps. And we said, we're not interested in the f- anything other than what's it like selling this thing? And we collected this, and we collected it through a tool we use called SenseMaker, which allows us to look at patterns of it. And one of the things that came out was um, nobody sells it on the basis of the scientific data. That's a hygiene factor. That's just a given, surely. What they need to be able to sell it is more examples of what happens when people take it, because that was clearly having the effect. So they immediately, you know, they finished off the, the, the scientific research because they'd already commissioned it. They had a huge event for every sales rep for this drug in Europe came together. And rather than focus on the usual stuff, there were a couple of places we found national differences. So in Germany, I think they were having trouble overcoming objections. In other places, they were having difficulty closing. But what they did was they put a bunch of A patients and B GPs on the stage and said, what's your experience with this drug? And they told the stories, at which point everyone went, oh, got it, right. And the sales went up. Simple as that. So 10, 15 years ago, like no. I was a pharma rep at that time. So I <laughs> that story, I wasn't with Pfizer, but the number of times sales events leveraged that. And I noticed, I don't know if you've noticed it today, but I've noticed a lot of marketing today plays on a very similar thing. <laughs> Do you think we are abusing the power of narrative now in order to drive an ulterior? motive that's a very strong word abusing isn't it and the answer is probably yes because to me and i think you've got this sense already when i when i work with narrative i want to get an accurate picture i want to get an accurate picture that's not just putting the positives all the time but nor is it doing the negative it's a balanced picture to go here's the reality um it's where I got unstuck on more than one occasion in IBM. Um, and it, funnily enough, earlier this year with other clients. But the thing to me about a lot of the way narrative is being used is it's just the positive and it's just look how wonderful we are. And a little like we talked about earlier in terms of narrative structure within an organization or how you want to communicate, you have to include obstacles and you have to include the misses. Yeah, we didn't quite manage this, but this is what we had instead. And an awful lot of these stories are so cleaned up and so neatly arranged that they don't work like that. Um, 
I think which also plays into a, there's there's two other things I think for people who are starting to use narrative to think on. Forgive me, I'm talking way more than I intended. I hope it's just because we ask such world class questions but, and we let you have the floor. You see, the, the intention is for you to talk, so that's excellent. Okay. Um, so there's two other things which I think are really worth noting in this space, which is one the use of metaphor, because the metaphors don't always work the way we think they do, and sometimes the stories we tell aren't the ones we think we're telling either. You've got to step back and hear it from the audience's perspective. But I think also as leaders, it's um, a question of where are you putting the camera? Whose story are you telling? And what role are you playing in the story? So when I say that, I had a conversation years ago with a large building society. that said, oh, customers are our, our main priority. And here's all the stories we're telling about how our people are helping customers. And I'm like, but your people are the protagonists of all the stories you're telling. Customer isn't number one. Cust customer is the background. And you're telling stories about your people. Now, that might be okay, but it does clash with your espoused value. Um, and similarly, in an awful lot of organizations, as communications often to play to leaders' egos, will tell stories where the leader is the hero. But that's not an empowering story. An empowering story would be a leader as a mentor or as an ally and somebody else is the hero. What's the leader's role in there? What's your role in there? Um, there was some work I did a few years ago talking with um, some military folk who were operating at the time in some difficult environments, shall we say. Um, and what was deemed a great success on one occasion was when there was a sniper who had been firing on people in a local town the British military had taken out the sniper, had, had resolved the problem. And they were delighted that other people around the place were telling the story of how this had happened. They hadn't had to go out and tell the story themselves. So to them, that was a great success and set things up for their withdrawal from the town. And I had to point out that I'm not sure that does help. It's great that they're telling the story, you're not doing it. But on the other hand, it's not, not empowering them to think they can deal with snipers because it was you who dealt with it and you're saying you're leaving. So that still feels like a gap. What, what role should we as individuals be taking in the story and who should we be putting as the main protagonist? Yeah, I love that mindset. I was reading something about storytelling for consultants um, the other day and that, uh, rightly, the person that had written this had, was talking about how stories need to have characters, etc. And then they said, and the characters in your story, this is designed for senior consultants, partner level folks to, to be telling stories. And they said the characters in your stories are likely to be your, your consulting team staff members or maybe your clients. And I was like, mm. surely the characters are most likely to be the customers of your clients or the employees of your clients and certain definitely not your staff members. Yeah. So that uh, what you just said really resonates about like thinking a lot about who is actually going to be in the center of the story, who is the hero in the story, so that you're inspiring people in the right way to the right behaviors. One of mm -hmm. the reasons for using a story is inspiration. And if you're inspiring people to think, well, leaders are the only ones who can solve problems, then you're barking down the you're heading down the wrong path, I suspect. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. It comes back to that whole piece about infantilizing people, reducing their agency in the organization that way. Yeah. I, I wanted to just um okay. you, you spoke earlier about the whole the the pattern matching and the touched on elements of the neuroscience around that and of how stories can land with people in different ways. I just wondered if there are other elements of neuroscience or the way that brains work that we need to be thinking about to not mess up storytelling and have un unwanted consequences. So I think that the pattern matching is, is the biggest one for me. There's a number of pieces within that, though. I think, Graeme, you mentioned the way you work with people around the world and the different attitudes of saving face and things like that. There's a trick I learned years ago. Um, my first trip to Singapore, I dropped into a bookshop and picked up a book of children's uh, fairy tales, children's folk tales, because I realized that that will always tell you what the dominant culture around there is and what matters. So this is a slightly overblown theory, and it's mine, so confirmation bias. White paper to come next week, right, Tony? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> um, I think that there are dominant folk myths in most countries, and the dominant folk tales will tell you a lot about the culture. So to your point, you know, in parts of the US, it's the individual explorer, the the Western, the you know, there's there's Mike, Columbus, Mike. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. What Westerns where there's one good guy fighting against all the bad, and he's principled and he stands up for what he believes, and whether anybody else believes that or not doesn't matter, and that can be really dangerous. I think in the UK, um, we used to have uh, King Arthur. I th think in the 19th century, probably early into the 20th century, where we were a benevolent dictator, let's put it that way. And I think that dominated an awful lot of damaging stories around empire. But I think these days, probably something like Robin Hood, which is mistrust of authority, seriously ambivalent issues around money and other things like that, and you fight for the common man and all of that kind of thing. Whereas you go to somewhere like Singapore, you know, one of the stories that stuck in my mind was there were... Um, a couple of children who misbehaved and stole the river god's pearl. And as a result of that, the entire village gets turned into mudskippers. So if you want a story that goes individual behavior, but community impact. It's a pretty strong that, one. Yeah. So, you know, and there's variations on that, I think, are true for everywhere. So whenever you're working across boundaries, international boundaries, I think it's useful to try and pick those up and start to understand how some of those will play differently. Fascinating. It's really got me thinking around how leaders can create space for this. Mm. And I wondered, as we start to sort of bring it to a close today, if you could offer a new leader or someone in the first quarter of their career as a leader, a tip to really use narrative effectively, what would that tip be? I love the question. And I think there's a couple of places I go with it. So okay. one is listen to the other stories first before you put yours out. And maybe you need to put out a vulnerable story of your own within boundaries, within safety boundaries, to be able to inspire other people's stories. 
I think there is a piece that says be authentic and be personal about your story. So it's not about some beautifully constructed corporate language piece of work. It's genuinely from the heart. And I think the, th the other piece to that is make sure when you're telling a story, you want to set up what the starting point. You want to set up the challenge. What was the crisis that means the current status cannot persist? And then talk about some of the problems along the way to a resolution, including it may be that what you thought you were going to get turned out to be impossible. You got something else instead. So particularly where complexity is concerned, you want direction, not destination. So if you just go, we set out from here, we got to the other end and it was everything as planned. That's not an interesting story. It probably qualifies as a story just by dint of what it is. But it's no interest. doesn't tell anybody anything. If you tell us about the detours and the problems along the way and how in the end you didn't end up in Newcastle, you ended up in Manchester because actually you realised that's where you needed to be. Now that will get people much more engaged and interested and willing to tell you more about their stuff. That that sounds to me like a, a hero's journey type story structure of we set off in this direction and then we hit all of these challenges and we thought we weren't going to make it and then we came through mm -hmm. the other end and all all was fine in the end. Um, is that your kind of go-to story structure? Do you have different structures used for different situations? I think it's useful and I think it's overdone is the, yeah. the hero's journey. Um, because the other thing I'd say that's worth noting about an organisation, and I've seen plenty of people come in with the hero's journey and going, we have the structure from Hollywood. Let's put apply it to your corporate story. Um, and for one thing, there is no such thing as a perfect story. You know, Hollywood doesn't manage it. We've all watched some absolute bombs like John Carter of Mars or whatever else that was just like, okay, you had a beautiful structure and no one liked the movie. Um, but actually in an organization, there isn't an ending in the way that there is in a Hollywood movie. So actually that structure doesn't really apply. It can be useful. It can be a guideline, but people stick too tightly to it. For me, it's much more how do you tell a multitude of anecdotes and little fragments of story that set out pieces of this. Yeah. And we've talked about good and bad. There's a piece that David Meister, who did a lot of work at Harvard on uh, professional services companies, talks about. He says that whenever we set an aspiration, we set a vision, and you know, we raise the bar of what we want to be, we often forget to raise the bar on what we no longer tolerate and what behaviors we don't want to see. So you have to tell those stories and we have to stick to them. Because actually people may be bre breaching some of those principles, but because they're getting good maybe revenue results or margin results or to what we were saying earlier, they're getting great sales, we'll overlook the fact that they're not fitting in with what we say is the necessary change. So there's a, always a trade-off with that. If you're going to tell a story, you've got to make sure it actually persists, even in the face of someone disobeying it, but getting a good result. Yeah, that brings up for me a really the really interesting connection between stories and culture. Mm. Uh, so I so I saw saw this all the time in consulting firms where they would talk about the behaviours that were valued as part of the culture, which would often be about um, le coaching others, developing others, investing in others, work life balance, sustainability, mm. all of these good things. And then the people getting promoted into the partner team are the ones with the biggest revenue lines, regardless of how much they've 
crush yeah. their teams in doing it. And there is nothing to my mind that kills a culture faster than promoting people who don't live in line with your stated values. Yeah. Or, or maybe not kills a culture, but but uh brings light to the fact that your culture is not what you say you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um and then what I just heard from you is that those sto- the stories around that become just as important. If you're telling all of these stories about how we want people to behave, but then actually you behave differently and you make different decisions, then there's there's a whole bunch of cognitive dissonance going on for people. Like, well, you you told all of these stories that you wanted, or you said these are the stories you want to be able to tell, and but you're not doing that. That's a yeah. dangerous dangerous route to go down as a as a leader. Like, you've got to got to walk. Uh, you got to walk the talk, I suppose. Is one way of putting it. Yeah, I'd agree, and I, I think. Um... You've reminded me, forgive me, of another example, which was I can remember when I, again, at IBM doing a change program and here we did the big launch of here are the five core principles of how we should be behaving from now on. Um, subsequently, you know, my my sense is that culture is such an emergent property of multiple things, of which the narratives are a large part. Um, but we launched this thing. The number one thing was, you know, thy customer shall be thy God or words to that effect. And I can remember I was carpooling on the way home. And one of the guys who got into the car went, were you behind all that nonsense today? And I'm like, I think it's nonsense. It's really important. You know, it's where we're going. That's ah, nonsense. Let me tell you. And he told me a story of how that day he'd had a customer phone up and complain. Big issue. He'd gone, okay, I can see what to do. I can see not only how to fix that problem, but how we can convert the guy to becoming a fan after all. Really simple, straightforward. Went to his manager. Manager goes, no, just follow the rules. Just do this, do that. And he's like, but why? He said, so your whole thing about we make the customer more important, nonsense. And we never worked out why. It might have been a personality clash. It might have been a bad day. It might have been there was a golden rule or a budget or something. But there was never a reason for it. All he knew was that the customer really isn't that important. And that was the number one principle. So I'm not even going to bother looking at principles two, three, four, five, because the reality of this place plays differently. So how do you, it strikes me that there is a role for not just gathering the anecdotes, positive and negative that are the current situation, but planning Mm -hmm. the stories you want to be able to tell in terms of building the culture that is necessary. Mm-hmm. Is that something you've seen organizations do? Yes. And and not necessarily planning it, but certainly when, once you gather them, and we use the, the SenseMaker tool, that you can look at, okay, where, where might things shift? Where aren't they going to shift? And then you illustrate with anecdotes. And you feed the leadership and you feed leaders with, so here's an example of what we want. There's a great quote from the, the sci-fi writer, William Gibson. He says, the future's already here. It's just really badly distributed. Right. Which I think sums up 90% of organizations that I've come across. There's always examples of what you are saying you want happening. We just need to spread them further. So you need to give more little examples, not some grand one necessarily. But I think also to a piece that we sort of touched on, by bringing people's voices in, it's a very participative thing. And quite often what you want, if you're going to change culture, for instance, is you then take stories back to people. And we've done this and gone, okay, here are stories that are healthy. We don't tell them why we like them because the minute you label them, 
they go, oh, they're looking for that. So no, just give them examples of good and give them examples of bad. And then we go back to teams and go, what would you do? What little experiments could you run that would generate more stories like these and fewer like those? And from very early on, I first worked with Royal Mail long ago about using stories to triangulate actions and just start to give that sense of there's a push and there's a pull and you give people a chance to participate in what happens next with the narratives you've collected from them as well. So making it as participative as possible, but you get to set the direction by going those ones, not those ones. Nice. Yeah. So what what I'm really hearing there is that the, if, if you have some kind of grand vision of a culture that you want and you can't find anecdotes that match up to that culture right now, then you're probably trying to step too far too fast. Yeah. And you need to figure out the anecdotes that reflect what you want and find more of those. Graham. I was just going to say, um, we could probably keep talking for hours. I certainly could. Apologies. Oh, no, I, I genuinely could. And I think we could go a lot of places and I'm sure listeners have very much enjoyed what we've covered today. Tony, if people wanted to hear more of your experience or access what you do or get a little bit more snippet into to, to your part of the world, how's best that they find that information? Thank you. Um, so I'm, I'm on, I'm going to call it Twitter because I'm not going to call it X. It just feels wrong. Um, I'm on there. Even press Conver- don't even call it X anymore. They go Twitter X. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm on there as T as T Quinlan, T Q U I N L A N. Um, website is narrate.co.uk. Um, later this year, we'll be actually starting a newsletter, so we'll we'll have sign up details for that at some point. But it's not there yet. Well, Tony, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been a wonderful exploration of story. And we look forward to hearing from all of you one soon. Thank you very much, gents. It's been been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Tony. Hi, chaps. Hello. Hello. I'm I'm sitting here kind of with a big smile on my face um, because that, for me, was 45 minutes of real enjoyable, interesting stuff. But I'm interested, what did you guys make of it? I loved it. I thought very, very interesting. Uh, really provoked some new thoughts to me about how to use story, how to think about stories, narratives, anecdotes. Yeah, it was great. And what a lovely guy. Yeah, I guess you're relieved, Jamie, because, you know, I know you've had a long working history with Tony and he didn't share any stories about you. So. <laughs> for the listeners there they can listen to the after hours podcast that we'll be recording later on <laughs> um yeah. no for me it was it was fascinating um i've long enjoyed the benefit of story but what was curious to me and i i guess it came through and where my questions were coming through was just how much society society today uses and abuses and misleverages and manipulates story for some ulterior motive. And what really came out of me from the conversation was how much, if you still stay back to the authentic truth with the intent, authentic or the intended audience clear in your mind, story still shapes the world in a really powerful way. 
an all story, not just the really good ones. Sometimes the ones that are a little bit harder seem to resonate even more was the impression I was left with. Mm. And not just the big ones, but the small stories as well. Mm. Yeah. I was really left like, so my background is very, my bias is very analytical and data led and stories for me through most of my career have been about clearly articulating the insights from data essentially with a with my consultancy hat on and i was really struck by actually the the power of hu the human stories and to bring that to life and actually what i'm left with is the the feeling that making space to hear those stories is really important and it doesn't have to be a lot of space you know like i i really love this concept of the anecdote circle hmm. and an hour and a half an hour even of people sitting in a circle just telling stories and that's not a lot of time but the power of that is in, is immense i can totally see yeah, like how that how powerful that would be well you've just come back off a weekend at the mankind project which we know is something you're yeah. deeply passionate about. And I bet some of these anecdotes circles, even though they weren't called that, were being used through that workshop. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a different environment. Yeah. Like, I, I, I remember I did one of my adventure challenges things, and I ended up with a group of people I've never met before. You know, seven people from all over the world. We've got a Russian, we've got a Swiss, we've got a, two Americans, a Scottish lass, um, and a few others. The first, we had two nights in the Isle of Skye wilderness, and we literally got thrown together at like the last minute to do this thing. We've gone off on this adventure. We're over there. The first night, everyone's getting to know each other, some nice sort of surface level chat. We all make it through the first night sleeping in bivy bags on the side of a river in sky but then the following night we were looking to come together to find a place to sleep and we were all navigating together to find this place and we found this dream spot um just above um oh what is it one of the famous oh sky whiskey one of the sky whiskey places Right, just above there, and it's a former lookout spot for the estuary. So it's perfectly engineered and flat, which is when we were in the middle of a boggy, wet Scottish field, was exactly what we needed. And we created a fire, and then we spent about four hours not building on story, like Tony talked to, you know, about the one-up kind of stories that he mentioned, just sharing very honest personal stories. And the catharsis, but the connection and all of that that went on was just unreal. And I knew, I know the guy who was running it and him and I had, had a chat with that F and he goes, yeah, that was just one of the moments where I knew I needed to let it go. And it makes me think about how, how some lead, some people listening to this podcast might sort of come out of here and go, I need to do less to get more story. Sometimes I just need to put the space out there. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you referenced the Mankind Weekend. I've just been on, Graham, and one one of the things that is a feature of staffing on those weekends is very regular check-ins 
amongst the staff team and there's a lot of people on the staff team so and there's not a lot of time so we run those check-ins very tight and often it's one or two words and i'm just sitting here thinking well actually those one or two words are a story there's my personal story in that moment and there were moments of the weekend where i checked in with you know satisfied and excited or uh joyful and connected and then there was one moment in particular where i checked in with pissed off and unsafe and that was my story in that moment and that connected me to other people in various different ways so even these these stories of the of your team if you're leading a team can you can get it to a level of story very very quickly if you just ask the question and leave some space for it with that with curiosity which I think is super important. The thing that I like really liked was the uh, when Tony talked about going to Singapore and buying the local children's folk story book. Whoa. In the context, I'm thinking quite a lot at the moment about leading diverse teams and how leaders can help bring cognitively diverse teams together and culturally diverse teams together. And the idea that you'd sit your team down in a circle and spend an hour telling each other your favorite childhood fairy stories and that that would give you an insight into the patterns that they're using to think about the world. I think that would be really cool. Oh, really. I took that one away. I got, I got a little excited when I heard that. I was like, <laughs> of course, what a great source of that insight. And like you say, just holding space for that gives you so much about where people are coming from, what, what yeah. compass they're using. It's really interesting to watch you guys and see how much positive energy and further sparks going off in your heads um, about something which is, as I think Tony described, it's the oldest form of conveying knowledge, sharing knowledge, making sense of the world, um, and, and arguably a skill that we learn from almost as early as we can walk. Um, and yet, we perhaps sometimes underestimate its power. Um, and I think that progressively, this is a lot, a lot down to the kind of work I do and the, the people I do it with. Um, so I get sort of bombarded with people saying, oh, well, you've got to get some more data scientists involved in the kind of stuff you do because it's great how you make sense of the world using all that great quantifiable data and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, yeah, let's not, over, uh, let's not overlook the incredibly rich data that exists in stories. It's just one of the challenges. How do you capture them at scale? And, uh, and SenseMaker is a great example of how you can do that. Um, but I don't, I don't know whether I've talked to you before or, or mentioned before um, a guy called Christian Madsberg who wrote a book called Sense Making. Um, he's a founder of Red Associates, and I did some work with them in, with the previous client, and we created a new sense making process um, together. Me doing some of my data work and then bringing the anthropological, sort of social science uh, methods together. And he talks about thick data and thin data. Then data is the quantifiable, um, what's going on here type data. And the thick data is the richer, why data. It's to help you get behind just the surface evidence of there's lots of things happening here, lots of things happening here. The rich, thick data then says, why might it be happening? And I think what Tony's just given us a bit of a window into is not just these stories are very powerful, but there are different ways of approaching how to use them but also understand the risks and the pitfalls that people can sometimes find themselves in. And so when you've got that thick data, 
and there's all kinds of ways of capturing that these days and as as you well know i'm i'm a big fan of ai tools for recording conversations and transcripts etc and all of that stuff but the reality is at the moment a lot of that is gathering this big pile of thick data that i don't have a, a way to really analyze that systematically like how do how do people get like how do people go about gathering and getting value from that thick data in their day-to-day jobs is there anything they can do that helps them bring those insights to life i think funnily enough these days with you know chat gpt particularly as an example of the large language model approach to how do you make sense of lots of data quickly um with some degree of intelligence as to what it might be saying then you know the layman like you and i um, and graham we call citizen scientists now have got much more power to analyze vast amounts of qualitative data particularly as we live in a much more virtual virtualized environment and a lot of the the rich thick data is all through chat rooms or internal bulletin boards so yammer jira um, slack and, you know teams messaging and, and chatting so it's, it's in the public domain within the company environment um, and therefore is technically analyzable um, using some of these now clever tools. Um, I actually ran an experiment with, um, this is before Gen AI came out, but it was a, a very smart bit of AI, two, two AI engines they, that were originally designed to scan the social networks all the time, everywhere, for micro-narratives forming. So one of the engines spotted when a, at least three opinions had been shared around a topic and said, ah, there's a micro-narrative forming, and it, it, it tries to, and it tracked it. See how it grew, which channels it went moved across from to, and and how did that change over time? You could monitor micro narratives, and then the second engine scored it, and it was principally designed so it could understand whether there was a threat. So is it uh, radicalization? Is it hate? Is it? And it and it scored it thing on things like sentiment, a stance, uh, attitude, and so on and so forth. So you've got this incredible picture of micro narrative forms in Philippines on August the fifteenth by. December, it's in five regions. There are now 25,000 people a day um, sort of sharing this story and the sentiments changed. Now, it was designed to initially, the founder wanted to combat misinformation and fake news, realized it's an impossible task. So they've turned it, they pivoted and they've turned it into a tool which has helped, helps protect brands. So Coca-Cola can keep an eye on who's talking about Coca-Cola or certain things that you can just program it with the uh, keywords. But that that business was bought by the world's now largest PR marketing analytics company. And a fabulous tool. I did I ran and we ran an experiment with one of my clients where we used the internal data, not the social media data, internal data going back four years. Are there some micro narratives for me about what's going on in the business? And we didn't we did a blind test so we didn't tell it what to look for. And sure enough, quarter of a million bits of data we found 600 micro-narratives that formed over four years, which clustered into about 35 categories. And half of them were related to themes that were directly related to the cultural transformation program that had started during that period. So these tools are out there. Wow. Um, Sensemaking, Tony talked about, it's a brilliant one. That's where you're creating data and capturing it. Um, but there are other things you can, do, you can use it, but it does require a bit of thinking, a bit of planning, um, and be wary of what you're gathering. I think, as Tony said, one of the risks is you find out what's truly true. Yeah, I think there's got to yeah. be fairness in that. 
I, I've got the vision of a sieve. You know, you've got a you've got a ton of data in the top of the sieve, and you're letting some bits through, yeah. and the the groupings or the headings or the behavioural centres that you use to to screen that data through. I think are really, really important for leaders if they're going to do it. It's going to take time to do. And like you say, AI tools can help massively now. But if you only lean on the positive ones, you're only going to get a biased view of that data as you receive it. Yeah. So yeah, I think that ladder of inference we talked about last time. Yeah, it's really critical that leaders look at what they what they're filtering or grouping around and make sure that's fair and balanced. Otherwise, you're just now manipulating the data to the story that you yeah. want. Yeah. Uh, so the the other piece that really struck me from that Tony talked about quite near the start, actually, was about getting a group of leaders in a room and asking them to tell stories about or anecdotes about good leadership and none of them could think of an example. And then they flipped it to talk about bad and the floodgates opened. And that, for me, was a really insightful way of figuring out what the bias is in the organization. Is there a bias towards negative stories and all of the things that that might imply about the culture, or is there a bias towards positive stories? And nearly every organization is going to have a bias one way or another, but that was such a simple tool to figure out where that bias sits in that leadership team. And then once you understand that bias, you know, maybe we need to spend more time promoting the positive stories or more, more time promoting the negative stories to get back in balance. I thought that was really interesting as well. Oh, massively fascinating. That that sparked me off because I sat there and think, well, what's the conditions that created that? The one source that we get most narrative from every day is media. And what is it? Seven pieces of bad news is the equivalent value of one piece of good. And we only ever hear bad stories or it's not quite good enough or identifying the gap between someone's definition of perfect and where the reality actually is. All the stories we tend to hear most of the time are the stories of not quite good enough. So when yeah. we default to ask, being asked, can you share a story of good leadership? It's just not in our, it's not in our programming. No. And that says some big things about victim mentality and oh. lack of, responsibility and unconscious leadership and all of those good things that we've we have spoken about and we'll speak about more it's all connected man it's all connected it's a big conspiracy story it's everything's connected <laughs> on that bombshell is it a good point to leave this one fellas and yes. we'll see what we Conspir connect into this next time <laughs> yeah conspiracy there is next wonderful we've got adam and rosie coming on next week haven't we? we have we have indeed yes wonderful i'm really looking forward to that one have a good day, everyone. any of the subjects we cover in this podcast spark inspiration curiosity or concern within you do drop us a line details are in the comments below and we'll be happily there to listen and see how we can offer the best support for you mm -hmm.